Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 28, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, our first headline reads, Museum Christens New $5 Million Renovation, African American Museum of Iowa Reopening as Headquarters for Growing Statewide Presence by Elijah Decius. A ribbon-cutting Tuesday marked the anticipated reopening of not just a new building, but a new vision for the African American Museum of Iowa. With speakers from across the state and more than 200 in attendance, leaders of Iowa's primary source of black history celebrated a new milestone as not just a repository, but a headquarters for a growing statewide presence to match the demand for knowledge and resources. During a time when history has been rewritten, forgotten, or even worse, erased, now has never been a better time to grow the importance of telling our state's, our state's black history, said Zach Bohannon, chairman of the Voices Inspiring Progress Capital Campaign, tasked with, raising, tasked with raising $6 million for the renovation. Even once we think we have shattered one glass ceiling, we find another one is even higher because the fight for equality and justice never ends. The museum's reopening expected this spring, after more than 18 months of renovation, will unveil a modern face thanks to a $5 million renovation prompted by construction of the city's flood control system. The museum's former entrance, now blocked by a floodgate along 12th Avenue Southeast, has been moved to the building's east side along a glass-walled lobby. Major donors to the campaign include $1.07 million from the City of Cedar Rapids, more than $750,000 from the Iowa Economic Development Authority's Destination Iowa and the Hall Perrine Foundation, and significant contributions from Lynn County, as well as multiple other companies. The $6 million campaign included a goal of stretching the museum's endowment by $1 million. We're part of a village that transcends many boundaries, and we are pleased to continue being a voice that inspires progress, said Lanisha Castle, executive director of the museum. We are beyond inspired by this transformation. As efforts in diversity, equity, and inclusion from schools to corporations continue to face backlash from conservative state legislators, black speakers representing cities from Sioux City to Waterloo spoke of the importance of highlighting a history that hasn't been completely acknowledged in formal institutional education. With a marked uptick in resource demand that has been sustained since the 2020 murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, Castle told the Gazette that the demand for resources during the building's closure made the museum busier than it was before it closed in August 2022. On Tuesday, leaders affirmed the museum's role as one of, the, one of statewide importance, not just Cedar Rapids or Eastern Iowa acclaim. African-American history doesn't divide us, but it brings us together, said Waterloo Mayor Quentin Hart. After its first major renovation in 19 years, the building features a multitude of both cosmetic and functional improvements, an expanded lobby and parking lot, new carpet and lighting throughout, a reinforced roof, new climate control and sprinkler systems, and the more visible relocation of the trumpet sculpture inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But inside, visitors will soon notice even more a genealogy lab to allow the public to research their family history, a new reception desk and merchandise counter, and improved space for both permanent and temporary exhibits. On reopening this spring, visitors will be able to see an exhibit about the museum's history since it started at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in 1993, including past exhibit themes. Republicans halt move to revive library tax. Libraries, museums warn of losses, as 2023 law takes effect by Tom Barton. House Republican lawmakers have halted a proposal that would help Iowa's public libraries reverse anticipated financial losses 
under a property tax reform measure signed into law last year. House lawmakers held a subcommittee meeting hearing Tuesday on House File 2442. The bill would enable cities to reinstate the library tax that was constrained by last year's property tax bill. Doing so under the proposal would require the approval of a majority of voters during a regular city election. If approved, the tax could be collected for 10 years and extended for additional 10-year periods if reauthorized by voters at election. A city council could discontinue the tax by a majority vote of council members. A total of 97 communities across the state have voted to pass a library levy, including Iowa City and Marion. Voters in Cedar Rapids, however, in 2015 rejected it. The loss of these levies have had tremendous unintended consequences, said Sam Helmick, past president of the Iowa Library Association, who served on the Governor's Commission of Libraries as a Republican. It will have material damage. Our libraries are community anchor institutions that provide essential services and resources that support job-seeking and entrepreneurial workforce and economic development, as well as lifelong learning and social welfare. And losing them is like losing a major employer in the community, Helmick said. Iowa lawmakers last year passed and Governor Kim Reynolds signed House File 718, which introduced major overhauls to the state's property tax system aimed at reducing future property tax bills. That proposal earned strong bipartisan support, passing in the Iowa House 93 to 1 and the Iowa Senate 49 to 0. Among the law's many provisions were limitations on cities' collection and use of several tax levies, some of them approved by voters, and devoted to specific purposes such as facilities for veterans, free municipal band concerts, or public library operations. HF 718 rolled the dedicated tax levies into cities and counties' overall general tax rate, which are capped and where they must now be budgeted alongside all other services. That will result in a large financial blow to Iowa libraries, museums, municipal bands, and facilities, according to city leaders and library officials across the state. The passage of HF 718 has been devastating since it has taken away the guarantee of funding that so many libraries, especially small and rural ones, depend on. Rosalind Thompson, director of the Knoxville Public Library, wrote to lawmakers in support of the new proposal. Bigger libraries are also going to lose funding that will lead to cuts in services and programs that are essential in our communities. Please reconsider HF 2442. Eliminate the need for a sunset clause to these levies and eliminate the need for a mandatory revote while retaining the voters' authority to make decisions for their communities that they love. Reinstate all previously voted levies where the people have spoken. The Iowa Library Association, Iowa League of Cities, and League of Women Voters of Iowa were all registered in support of the bill. Local communities still are collecting property tax dollars to support library operations. The money, though, is being deposited into general operating budgets, which allows cities to shift funds from libraries to other projects that would typically be funded by increased taxes. The result eliminates the option for communities to create future library levies, and has led to disagreements among library boards, directors, and city councils as to how the money is used amid competing needs. CR signs off on historic $576 million data center. Council lies prospect for massive amount of property tax valuation from project by Marissa Payne. In awarding city financial incentives Tuesday to an unnamed company to build a $576 million data center in Big Cedar Industrial Center, Members of the Cedar Rapids City Council lauded the project, the city's largest ever, as a historic milestone in Cedar Rapids' economic development history. Eyeing the potential to expand the city's tax base in the future, 
the Council approved an agreement with Heaviside LLC that calls for the construction of one or more data centers along 76th Avenue Southwest and Edgewood Road Southwest in the Big Cedar Industrial Center. While Heaviside is named, the company that will occupy the development is not. Some future city council in 20 years is going to have a massive amount of property tax valuation that's going to start flowing into the city budget, Council Member Tyler Olson said. I probably won't be here to see that, but somebody's going to thank us for it. Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell agreed and said this is how a city scales. In 20 years, wow, what a lucky council. Council members Marty Hager and Scott Olson were absent, but those present on the nine-member council unanimously approved the agreement. An 890-acre certified portion of the overall Big Cedar site is Iowa's first mega site, which offers hundreds of acres of development-ready land to potential developers. All 1,391 acres are controlled by Alliant Energy. The project's advancement adds to tremendous growth in southwest Cedar Rapids in recent years as the city has awarded incentives toward the construction of massive warehouses and other buildings in the area around Interstate 380 and the Eastern Iowa Airport. Other recent projects include kitchen appliance company Sub-Zero's $140.6 million light manufacturing building, FedEx's new $108.6 million distribution center, and BAE Systems' $135 million classified defense aerospace facility that employs 800. The data center project far surpasses those recent major investments. You hear me often say cities are forever, O'Donnell said. When you look at the timeline of Cedar Rapids, this will be its own bullet point on the timeline in terms of another massive development. The development would create a minimum of 31 new full-time employees paid at or above the high-quality wage rate. Construction is slated to start within three years of the development agreement taking effect. Development Services Manager Bill Michiel said staff anticipate the city will see more than 31 people employed by Heaviside, but do not yet know the full range of jobs that could be created. There would be seven or eight years of construction and likely hundreds of construction jobs created in addition to the permanent jobs at the data center. Under the terms council approved, the company will receive a 20-year 70% tax exemption so long as it meets employment thresholds and the high-quality job application is approved. The tax break would start once the first data center is complete. City staff will work to create an urban renewal area over the next year, Economic Development Coordinator Scott Mather said. The Iowa Economic Development Authority Board is slated to consider state incentives for the project March 22nd. If the application is not approved, according to council documents, the city agrees to work in good faith to provide comparable tax increment financing rebates in lieu of the tax exemption. Under the agreement, the company would give the annual community betterment payments to the city to increase economic development activities, including growth of amenities and infrastructure. There would be yearly payments of $400,000 per data center for 15 years, with a maximum of $6 million per data center, $36 million total. The company still would pay utilities, but the city also would provide a monthly credit of $1.30 per cubic foot of gray wastewater discharge under the approved deal. Per unit credit would escalate each year at 2.5% up to 57% for per unit sewer discharge rate. Lansing Bridge could be closed months. Iowa DOT said it is working on alternative transportation options. It could take up to two months to stabilize the historic Black Hawk Bridge over the Mississippi River at Lansing, which was closed Sunday after engineers noticed a slight movement of the structure. While the bridge remains closed, drivers who use it to cross between Alamakee County and Crawford County in Wisconsin will have to drive miles to find another bridge over the river, 
either to the south using Highway 18 between Marquette and Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, or to the north crossing the river on Highway 14 between La Crescent, Minnesota and La Crosse, Wisconsin. The Iowa Department of Transportation estimates about 2,200 drivers cross the Black Hawk Bridge every day. The Iowa DOT announced Tuesday in a Facebook post that it was working on alternative transportation options for those who, who rely on the bridge, but didn't say what those might entail. A commenter on the agency's post suggested a ferry. The bridge, which opened in 1931 but later was closed for about 17 years after it was damaged by ice dams, was blockaded Sunday out of safety concerns. Engineers were sent to inspect the bridge Monday and determine how to proceed. Just 50 feet to the north of the Black Hawk Bridge, construction of a new $140 million bridge to replace it began last fall, but the new connector is not expected to be complete until the end of 2026. After thoroughly inspecting the bridge, engineers have determined there has been movement in two existing bridge piers near the work zone, the Iowa DOT announced Tuesday. Work is already in progress to stabilize the two impacted piers so we can reopen the bridge as quickly as possible. However, work is expected to take up to two months. The bridge will not be reopened until it is deemed safe. Linmar School Board appoints Laura Thomas to fill vacancy. She will serve remaining year and a half of Matt Rollinger's term, who resigned February 2nd, by Grace King. The Linmar School Board has appointed Laura Thomas to fill a board seat left vacant by Matt Rollinger, who resigned earlier this month with a year and a half left in his term. Thomas, 38, a Northeast Iowa native whose parents were educators with an area education agency, recalled she was intimidated when her oldest son entered kindergarten in the Linmar Community School District eight years ago. What I thought was this huge, overwhelming place was actually a close-knit community like I grew up with, Thomas said. Thomas decided to apply for the vacant school board seat to be a voice for every child and family in the school district, she said. She was one of five residents in the Linmar District who applied for the unpaid opening on the seven-member board. Her term expires at the next school board election in November 2025. I don't take lightly the commitment involved in this, she said after the appointment Monday. I will do everything I can to bring my skills and knowledge to the table. I'm here to serve Linmar and try to be someone who can see all sides and do what's best for Linmar. Rollinger, who was first elected in November 2021, resigned February 2nd from the board. He did not cite a reason in a letter to the board read by President Barry Buckholz during a meeting earlier this month. Thomas, a single parent with two kids ages 12 and 9, said she began watching Linmar School Board meetings regularly online about a year ago. When I'm cooking dinner on Monday nights, I have the board meeting streaming, she said. I acknowledge I still have a ton to learn, Thomas said. I'm not watching anymore. I am in it. I want to listen and have more in-depth conversations so I can better understand how some of those tough budget issues and legislation could impact Linmar. Thomas is a senior programmer for Social Policy Research Associates of Oakland, California. She works remotely, focusing on workforce and economic development and data analysis. Some of her work includes projects with the U.S. Department of Labor, where she evaluates workforce development programs such as job training and apprenticeships and their effectiveness. Previously, Thomas worked for the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance as a research and analytics specialist. Her career experience could be beneficial as the Linmar District designs career and college planning to provide students opportunities relevant to their career interests. Growing up, Thomas' parents worked for the Keystone Area Education Agency. Her mom was a speech pathologist and her dad was a special education consultant. Thomas does not have plans at this time to run for election at the end of her appointment, but said she is open to the possibility. 
She did not. She did consider running in the most recent school board election in November 2023, but thought other people who announced their candidacy would be a good fit on the board. Right now, my focus is learning how to do this job the best I can. If in 18 months the time comes and I feel like it would be beneficial for the board and Linmar community, and I feel like I can contribute, then I would consider it, Thomas said. One Dies in Tiffin House Fire by Emily Anderson. A 34-year-old man was killed in a fire at a townhouse Sunday in Tiffin, according to the Johnson County Sheriff's Office. The fire started just after Johnson County deputies responded to a welfare check at 8.45 a.m. Monday and made contact with the resident at the home, 192 Stevens Street. The fire quickly spread to the adjoining residence at 194 Stevens Street, a news release said. Both residences were occupied and the occupants were evacuated. James Christensen, 34, of 192 Stephen Street, was transported to the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics where he died. Two Johnson County Sheriff's deputies were treated and released from the hospital. The cause of the fire was not provided by the Sheriff's Office, which states the case is still under investigation. House rejects bill to require medical officials to honor requests for direct blood donations. GOP kills proposal opposed by experts by Aaron Murphy. A proposal to require hospitals and blood banks to comply with all patients' requests for blood donations from a specific donor was squashed Tuesday by Republican state lawmakers in the Iowa House. The bill would have required hospitals and blood banks to honor any blood transfusion patient's request for a blood donation from a known donor, like a family member, unless there was an imminent risk to the patient's life. Medical organizations and blood banks were uniformly opposed to the proposal, saying it would endanger patients' health and create logistical problems for blood banks. The legislative proposal recently passed the Iowa Senate with only Republican support. But after hearing from representatives of blood banks, hospitals, and individual health care experts during a legislative hearing Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol, Iowa Representative Stephen Bradley, a Republican from Cascade and the leader of the three-member legislative panel considering the bill, announced he does not support it and that it will not advance in the House, effectively killing it for the 2024 legislative session. Bradley noted in addition to the testimony he heard during Tuesday's hearing, he heard from two more, two more experts, his two nephews who are physicians. When I showed them this bill, they said, we don't need this bill, Bradley said. The bill had been proposed by Senator Jeff Edler, a Republican from State Center, who said it was proposed after guidance issued by the Federal Food and Drug Administration related to direct blood donations. Edler characterized his proposal as a simple way to honor Iowans' individual health care choices. In October 2023, the FDA issued a warning against websites that offered the delivery of blood from individuals who had not been vaccinated for COVID-19 and said that seeking direct blood donations based on the donor's specific characteristics, such as vaccination status, sexual orientation, gender, or religion, lacks scientific support. I will say there are plenty of evidence-based reasons for why we don't do routine direct donations, said Representative Austin Baith, a Democrat from Des Moines who was on the legislative panel and is a physician. And then there's also just logistical reasons to be able to manage all of a sudden a groundswell of people who want to have their blood now banked, the capacity to be able to store that, and then knowing that the shelf life of a unit of red blood cells is maximum 42 days. Federal court upholds Iowa law banning school mask mandates. Court says parents lacked legal standing by Kayla McCullough. A group of parents of students with disabilities lacks legal standing to challenge a state law prohibiting mask mandates at public schools, a federal appeals court ruled Tuesday. 
In a ruling written by Judge Ralph Erickson, the three-judge panel found that the parents did not show they had likely they had been or were likely to be injured by the state law. The ruling reversed a previous court injunction on the law and allowed it to take effect. The ruling is the latest decision in a three-year court battle over a 2021 law signed by Governor Kim Reynolds. The law prohibits schools, cities, and counties from requiring masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds applauded the ruling in a statement on Tuesday and defended the decision to ban school mask mandates. While children were the least vulnerable, they paid the highest price for COVID lockdowns and mandates, but Iowa was a different story, she said. Iowa was the first state to get students back in the classroom, and we prohibited mask mandates in schools, trusting parents to decide what was best for their children. Elected leaders should always trust the people they serve, and I promise I would do it again. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd said in a statement that the ruling was a win for parents' rights to make choices for their children. Freedom wins in today's court ruling to uphold Iowa's law banning mask mandates in schools, Byrd said. Parents have the right to choose what health care decisions are best for their kids. The lawsuit was brought by the ARC of Iowa, an organization that works with people with disabilities. Doug Cunningham, the group's executive director, said that the threat of COVID-19 has substantially subsided since the lawsuit was filed. Still, he said the decision to accommodate students' health and safety should be left up to local school districts and area education agencies. The public schools of Iowa have a long history of educating those students, including people with disabilities, he said, and they really don't need government to step in and tell them how to do that. Cunningham said he does not expect the organization will appeal the decision further. Schools in Iowa have largely dropped mask mandates as the prevalence of COVID-19 has gone down. Cunningham said he was not aware of any students with disabilities in the state that currently were requesting a mask mandate as part of their accommodations. Dyersville may have lost over $500,000 in suspected scam by the Associated Press. Officials in one eastern Iowa county are trying to track down $524,284 they believe was stolen when an employee transferred it in response to a fake email message that appeared to be from the city of Dyersville. Dubuque County officials announced the money was missing Monday, according to the Telegraph Herald. The payment came under the Federal American Rescue Plan Act and was supposed to be distributed by Dubuque County to Dyersville, Radio Iowa reported. But the county auditor and sheriff learned the money was missing when Dyersville officials asked about the status of the transfer after the county had already made it. Auditor Kevin Dragato said in a statement that an internal review determined that the city of Dyersville's email system had been compromised. Dragato said county employees received a request for the money from an official Dyersville email address and the payment was sent. The auditor's office said officials now believe that invoice was orchestrated by a third party. We'll conclude our first half with some items from today's capital notebook section. Manufacturers of meat substitute products would be allowed up to use meat-related terms such as burger, sausage, patty, or link, as long as the package makes clear it is a plant-based or lab-grown product under legislation approved by the Iowa Senate. The labeling requirement would apply to manufacturers and would not place any requirement on grocers. A previous version of the bill included a provision to prohibit Iowa's Regents universities from researching meat substitute products, but that was removed. The bill also would require the state to apply for a waiver to opt out if the federal government ever approves a lab-grown meat substitute for purchase under federal nutrition assistance programs like SNAP for individuals and families or WIC for expectant mothers. The bill also prohibits Iowa's public schools, regents, universities, and community colleges from purchasing lab-grown products. 
House passes ban on traffic stop quotas. State and local law enforcement agencies would be prohibited from instituting quotas for traffic stops under a bill passed by the, Iowa, by the House. Current law prohibits communities and law enforcement agencies from imposing a quota on the number of citations issued by officers. House File 2304 specifies that the law also would apply to imposing a requirement on the number of times officers stop vehicles for alleged traffic violations, regardless of whether a citation is issued. The bill, which passed the House 96 to 1, now heads to the Iowa Senate for consideration and passage. House passes bill ending hotel inspection mandate. State inspectors no longer would be required to inspect hotels once every two years under legislation passed out of the House. The inspections would instead take place once a complaint is filed. Lawmakers stripped out a measure that would have eliminated the annual inspections of businesses that are licensed to remove asbestos from construction sites. While current law requires the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing to inspect hotels and motels every other year, the department has not complied with that law, opting instead to perform inspections on a prioritized basis and in response to complaints. As a result, it's impossible to say what issues have gone undetected in Iowa's uninspected hotels, said Jeff, Representative Jeff Cooling, Democrat of Cedar Rapids. The bill was approved on a party-line vote with Democrats opposed. The bill now heads to the Senate. Bill would cap nursing home payments to temp agencies. House lawmakers approved a bill to cap the fees medical providers pay to temporary staffing agencies. House File 2391 is aimed at providing financial relief for nursing homes, hospitals, and other health care facilities that rely on temporary staffing agencies in the midst of a workforce shortage. The bill would require the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services to annually establish a schedule of statewide maximum allowable charges for nursing services provided by agency workers. The maximum charges must be no greater than 150% of the statewide average wage paid by specific types of health care facilities to various nursing services professionals. The bill prohibits any temp agency from using the schedule of maximum charges as a basis for prohibiting or otherwise interfering with a wage increase for any agency worker. It's not clear how the state would enforce that provision. The bill passed the House 80 to 17 and now heads to the Senate for consideration. Bill to add medical cannabis dispensaries advances. Iowa could have five new medical cannabis dispensaries under a bill state lawmakers advanced Tuesday. House Study Bill 684 would allow the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services to accept applications to license 10 medical cannabis dispensaries in the state. Currently, there are five. The bill was unanimously passed by a three-member House subcommittee, and it is eligible for consideration by the Full Ways and Means Committee. A companion bill in the Senate has passed out of a committee and is eligible for a floor vote. Lawmakers said the change was necessary to expand access for Iowans to medical cannabis. With five dispensaries in Iowa, some patients need to travel for hours to purchase from a dispensary. Bill would incentivize sports entertainment events. Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill that would create a program to incentivize major tourism attractions, such as sporting events, music festivals, and arts festivals. Senate File 2394 would set up the Iowa Major Events and Tourism Program, funded with $15 million in sports betting revenue. The bill would also dissolve an existing sports tourism marketing fund and transfer that money into the new fund. The bill was passed unanimously by a three-member Senate subcommittee Tuesday. It is eligible for consideration in the full Appropriations Committee. The bill would direct the Iowa Economic Development Authority and Enhance Iowa Board to provide financial assistance from the program to entities hosting large events. The state would be able to provide up to a 50% matching grant for the cost of the event.
House Democrats Propose Auto IRA Bill. House Democrats unveiled proposals Tuesday that would put the right to collectively bargain in the Iowa Constitution and provide retirement security for more Iowans. Democrats introduced House Joint Resolution 2003, which would amend the Constitution to say all employees, both public and private, have the fundamental right to organize and form a labor union and bargain for wages, hours, and workplace needs to protect their economic welfare and safety. It would also prohibit any law that interferes with the right to collectively bargain. House Democrats also introduced a bill that would implement a state-run auto IRA program. The legislation, which had yet to be assigned a bill number, mirrors those in 19 other states. Under the bill, Iowa employers with five or more employees that do not offer a workplace retirement plan of their own would be required to automatically enroll all employees in a retirement account in the Iowa Retirement Savings Plan Trust. Workers, though, could opt out. Republicans who hold an agenda-setting majority in the Iowa House and Senate are not expected to take up the proposals. Democrats intend to offer the state-directed retirement savings account proposal as an amendment to Republican bills. Democrats criticize opioid settlement plan. Senate Democrats criticized Republicans' proposal for the allocation of Iowa's share of opioid settlement funds, saying it is not sufficiently urgent. As of Monday, there was $25.1 million available for expenditure in the state's opioid settlement fund, according to the Legislative Services Agency. The funds come from a multi-state settlement with manufacturers of pain-killing and addicted opioid drugs. Under Senate Republicans' proposal, Senate File 2395, 75% of opioid settlement funds would be allocated to the State Health and Human Services Department to distribute, and 25% to the Iowa Attorney General's office. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 28, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Lynn Ann Dornfeld of Iowa City died February 19th after a prolonged battle with reoccurring breast cancer. Our beloved Lynn passed away peacefully at home without pain, surrounded by family. Lynn was born in Winona, Minnesota on May 26, 1967. She graduated from Fergus Falls, Minnesota High School with participation as a volleyball player, synchronized swimmer, diver, and as a multi-sport cheerleader. In academics, she reached the National Honor Society. College followed and Lynn earned a Bachelor of Science degree in biology from St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. Lynn's singing talent earned her a spot in the St. Olaf Choir. A highlight for Lynn was the choir trip to Seoul, Korea as part of the 1988 Pre-Olympic Arts Festival. After Seoul, Lynn joined other Oles on an overseas semester in Denmark. It was during this time that Lynn was struck by a commuter train and suffered injuries that delayed college graduation for a year and a half and left permanent impacts. In Iowa City, Lynn was an active member of St. Mark's United Methodist Church, Iowa City Eels Swim Club, Iowa City Chamber Singers, and Chapter OD of PEO. She worked for nearly 10 years with the Iowa City Community School District as a paraprofessional aide for students at several grade schools and at Iowa City High School. Lynn's successful activity level would be pretty good for the average person and exceptional considering the limitations imposed by her permanent injuries. Here are the memorials suggested by Lynn. The National Sports Center for the Disabled, in Denver, Colorado, the Iowa City Community School District Foundation in Iowa City, the St. Olaf College Foundation in Northfield, Minnesota. Private family graveside services are being planned for interment to take place at Oakland Cemetery in Iowa City, with a public celebration of Lynn's life to be announced later this spring. To share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gayanchia Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayanchia.com. 
Melody Marie Hoffman, 20, of Marion, was taken from us way too soon on February 18th. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 29th, Stuart Baxter Funeral Home and Memorial Services in Cedar Rapids. Funeral, 10.30 a.m. Friday, March 1st, at Cornerstone Church in Marion. Burial at a later date. Melody was born on December 9, 2003, in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of T.J. and Megan Summers Hoffman. Melody, true to her name, loved all kinds of music. Melody enjoyed her time at Liberty High School and Kirkwood Community College, where she, she made many good friends. She loved swimming, camping, concerts, and being involved in scouting. She volunteered at the Lynn County Animal Shelter and looked forward to volunteering more. Her, her love for animals ran deep. Those unable to attend are invited to watch the service via live stream. Please find the live stream link on Melody's tribute wall and share your support and memories with her family at stuartbaxter.com. A memorial fund has been established at the Collins Community Credit Union Melody Hoffman Memorial Fund. The Herkelman, Lawrence, and Dykeisen family sadly announced the passing of their beloved mom, Nana, Linda Aline Jones, 75, of Cedar Rapids, on Saturday, February 24th. She passed away peacefully in her sleep at Terrace Glen Village. Linda was born on October 3rd, 1948 in Waterloo. She was an only child to Forrest and Garnet Morrison. Mom graduated from Washington High School in the spring of 1966, and on September 10th, she married her high school sweetheart and husband of 56 years, Paul Jones. Later that fall, she followed Dad as he went off to basic training in Missouri and then deployed to Wiesbaden, West Germany. They moved to California in 1974 as Dad transitioned from military service to a job with the U.S. Postal Service. They moved back to Cedar Rapids in the spring of 1984, returning to Mom's childhood home on the northeast side of Cedar Rapids. After raising her three girls, Mom was proud of her 30-plus year career that began with the John Q. Hammonds Hotel, eventually becoming the Marriott on Collins Road. A visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Friday, March 1st at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, March 1st at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Interment will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. Paul R. Phelan, 94, died peacefully on Sunday, February 25th. He was surrounded by his family in his room at Grand Living. A lifelong resident of Cedar Rapids, Paul was born to Raymond and Amanda Latner Phelan on July 30, 1929. Paul graduated from Franklin High School in 1947, attended Loris College while also working for the Chicago Railroad and the Tree Department for Iowa, Illinois Gas and Electric. On June 17, 1950, he married Mary Elizabeth Betty Schwinn at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. Paul and Betty enjoyed 62 grand and glorious years together and were blessed with six children. While married, Paul began work at Cedar Rapids Paint, a business owned by his father-in-law. When Charles Schwinn retired, Paul took over the business and added framing and wallpaper services. Years later, the design studio was added, which included home furnishings. A commercial furniture department soon followed, along with a women's clothing boutique run by his wife, Betty. When the business changed locations in 1984, the company, was, the company name was changed to Phelan's Interiors. Paul retired from Phelan's in 2000. Paul enjoyed serving on the boards of the Cedar Rapids Symphony, the Cedar Rapids Art Association, Methwick Community, was a member of Rotary, and worked as a mentor with SCORE, advising young entre entrepreneurs on business startups. 
Paul was a charter, charter member of the local Cedar Rapids Christian Businessmen's Club, which hosted the mayor's prayer breakfast for many years. For close to 30 years, he enjoyed hosting a weekly Bible study at his store. A longtime member of St. Matthew Catholic Church, Paul regularly attended daily Mass, was trained as a befriender, and served as a Eucharistic minister. To honor Paul's memory and to celebrate his life, a visitation will be held on Friday, March 1st at Cedar Memorial Chapel Stateroom from 4 to 6 p.m. A massive Christian burial will be held on Saturday, March 2nd at 1 p.m. at All Saints Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. Following the service, Paul will be laid to rest at Mount Calvary Cemetery where his cremains will be joined to his wife Betty's grave. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to St. Matthew Church or the Peter Phelan Memorial Scholarship at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Online condolences may be shared at cedarmemorial.com. Cindy Bennett Snyder, age 68, of Anamosa, passed away peacefully on February 24th in the comfort of her home. There will be no public service. She was deeply loved and will be forever missed. Kathleen Josephine Katie Otting, 84, of Earlville, died peacefully on Monday, February 26th at the Good Neighbor Home in Manchester. She was born on February 22nd in Seneca, Kansas. Excuse me, she was born on February 22nd, 1940 in Seneca, Kansas, the daughter of Aloysius Ollie and Marie Weber Otting. Katie was raised and educated at St. Joseph Catholic School in Earlville. Katie worked as a CNA for almost 40 years at the Regional Medical Center in Manchester, retiring in 2006. She was a longtime member of St. Joseph Catholic Church and the choir. After her retirement, Katie enjoyed volunteering at the Good Neighbor Home. She made many children's quilts over the years for friends and family. Online condolences may be sent to leonard-mullerfh.com. Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Saturday, March 2nd, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Earlville. Family will greet friends 9.30 a.m. until the time of Mass, Saturday, March 2nd, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Earlville, and again in the church basement after the inurnment. Inurnment at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery in Earlville. Suzanne Campbell, 91, of Marion, passed away from cancer on Saturday, February 24th at Rehabilitation Center of Lisbon. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, March 1st at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, where family will greet friends one hour prior to the service. Burial will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Suzanne was born on September 10, 1932, in Severn, France, the daughter of Joseph and Madeleine Kolbklotz. She worked in hospitality all her life. Country Cafe, Sears Deli, Hy-Vee Deli, Bishop's, Kmart Deli, Von Mar Housekeeping and Gift Wrapping, and the Linmar School District Kitchen. On July 16, 1966, Suzanne was united in marriage to Kenneth Campbell in Cedar Rapids. She loved to shop and go to the casino and play slot machines. Suzanne loved watching Hallmark movies, game shows, Western movies, and Elvis. She enjoyed spending time with her grandkids and great-grandkids. Suzanne will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved her. Memorials in Suzanne's memory may be directed to the Alzheimer's Association or American Cancer Society. She is finally free of her dementia. Please share a memory of Suzanne at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Joseph Terrell Montgomery Sr., 73, of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, February 16th at his home. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Thursday, February 29th, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. Burial with military honors will follow at Linwood Cemetery. Joseph was born March 10, 1950 in Blountstown, Florida. He graduated from Mayhaw High School. 
Joseph was united in marriage to Frances Elizabeth Holliday on December 3, 1983. He worked for the United States Army for 18 years and later for the Cedar Rapids Parks and Recreation Department. Please share a memory of Joseph at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Dr. E. Ann Struthers of Cedar Rapids passed away peacefully on February 24th after a brief illness. A memorial service will be held on Saturday, March 2nd at 2 p.m. at St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Cedar Rapids. Cynthia Maher, 80, of Cedar Rapids, a treasure to her family, passed away on Monday, February 26th at her home. Celebration of Life, 10 to 12 p.m. Saturday, March 2nd at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids, with a sharing of memories at 11 a.m. Burial for Edward and Cynthia Maher will follow at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Cynthia was born December 18, 1943, daughter of George and Marie Cole Van Slyke in Iowa. She married Edward Bernard Maher Jr. on October 13, 1963 in Marion. She enjoyed feeding birds, doing puzzles, sewing, having movie and game night with her friends, playing pinochle, and spending time with her cat pickles. In her younger years, she loved bowling, fishing with her husband and kids, bingo and baking, especially her famous bread, cinnamon rolls, ambrosia chocolate pie, and homemade noodles. Cynthia also was a devoted Christian who loved the Lord. Memorials may be made to the family. Please share your support and memories with Cynthia's family on her tribute wall at stuartbaxter.com. Catherine M. Kathy Crawford, 69, of Quaswaton, passed away in a fire at her home on Sunday, February 18th. Kathy was born on January 31, 1955, in Independence, Iowa, the daughter of Norman G. and Iva I. Cress Olson. She attended Rowley Elementary School and was a graduate of Independence High School in 1973. On May 29, 1976, Kathy married Bradley Allen Crawford at the Methodist Church in Rowley. They made their home together in Quasquaton and raised their two children. Kathy worked for several years at Geeter Manufacturing in Independence and several other jobs before taking a position at East Buchanan Schools as the food service manager. She worked for the school for over 20 years, making sure everything in the kitchen ran smoothly and the students were well fed. Kathy was an accomplished baker. Her cookies, cakes, pies, and candies, which she shared generously, especially at Christmas, tasted as good as they looked. A memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 29th at the Rife Family Center, Funeral Home, and Crematory. Inurnment will be held at the Quasquaton Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 4 p.m. until 7 p.m. on Wednesday. To leave an online condolence, please go to rifefamilycenter.com. That concludes today's obituaries. Now turning to the opinion page, there are two letters to the editor today. The first is from Cindy Nicholson of Cedar Rapids. The headline reads, AEA bill is about control. It seems like the governor whined to the Senate about her AEA overhaul proposal when the House declined to move it forward. Her rationale for the overhaul was to improve low test scores for students receiving special education services. The bill now taken up by her Senate has nothing to do with improving outcomes for students. It's about the other services the AEAs provide media, professional development, etc., which benefits districts, teachers, and all students. Reynolds wants the AEAs under her thumb. The governor, House, and Senate should stop saying they are doing this to improve special ed student outcomes since it is really just about the money and control. And that's a letter from Cindy Nicholson of Cedar Rapids. Next letter is from Mike Makovec of Springville and is headlined, Don't Allow Felons to Run for Office. While reading the Friday paper, I saw an article about House Study Bill 697. 
In the article, it stated that the bill would allow candidates for Congress and the presidency to appear on Iowa's ballot even if they have been convicted of a felony. A felony is the most serious offense in our criminal justice system. Wouldn't it make more sense to restrict from the ballot anyone convicted of a felony? Don't we want law-abiding citizens representing us? If you think this is wrong, I urge you to contact your local representative at the legislative website. And that letter is from Mike Makovec of Springville. Here is a guest column by Barbara Eckstein. Women's Day goal is health and well-being. Every March, Johnson County United Nations Association celebrates International Women's Day by holding an event honoring the work of other local nonprofits that further both the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and the leadership of women. The event is an international buffet we call Night of a Thousand Dinners. This year, Night of a Thousand Dinners will be from 6 to 8 p.m. Thursday, March 7th at the Unitarian Universalist Society, 2533 Oakdale Road in Coralville, and its focus will be global goal number three, good health and well-being. Number three is not wishful thinking, but rather a set of calibrated, achievable global targets driven by the practical hope of UN employees, volunteers, and partners. Conflict over resources, intergenerational revenge, and rejection of human diversity necessitate clear alternative goals and hopeful resolve in response. Jay Cuna is proud to be one pocket of volunteers who work to achieve the UN's global goals, support the work of UNICEF, the World Food Program, the Commission on Refugees, or other agencies, and recognize the work of local partners. This International Women's Day, we are honoring Healthy Kids School-Based Clinics, the Emma Goldman Clinic, 4Cs, Community Coordinated Child Care of Johnson County, and the new Youth Stabilization Program by raising funds through sponsorships and ticket sales. Proceeds will be distributed among these local partners. UNICEF also will be a beneficiary of our fundraising. Jay Kuna board member and University of Iowa medical student Barbara Badovinak reminds us that while good health takes on many forms, the ability to achieve it here and now comes from a place of privilege. Insurance in this country is set up as a privilege not readily available to every member of our society. Not everyone has access to healthy and safe food, neighborhoods, jobs, social circles. It is possible to have good health without these things or bad health with every privilege under the sun but the system was created to support the people who already have a head start. We are actively working with patients, their families, their insurance, and their goals to offer the best possible care we can. There's so much good a hospital can do, and I'm proud to be contributing to that soon, but it is just not enough. That is where the community steps in and works tirelessly to minimize disparities. Local organizations like the 4J CUNA is honoring at a night of thousand dinners, are giving relief to patients by addressing stigma, policies, finances, communications, and other barriers that are leading to increased risk for diseases and complications. This year, Assistant Secretary of State and Career Ambassador Michelle Sison will be celebrating International Women's Day with us in person. Join us at 6 p.m. March 7th at the UUS 2533 Oakdale Road, Coralville. Tickets are available via event on eventbrite.com. Search for Night of a Thousand Dinners. Sponsorships of $100, $250, $500, and $1,000 are most welcome. Checks made out to Johnson County United Nations Association can be sent to us at 308 East Burlington Street, number 245, Iowa City, 52240. We'll focus our sports coverage today on the Girls State Basketball Tournament and read as many articles as we can in the time we have. First one's titled, A State Breakthrough. Locklear Phil's stat sheet as Clear Creek Amanda gets first state victory. 
by Jeff Linder. Bliss Beck learned, sometimes the hard way, when Ava Locklear has the ball, always be prepared. When I was a sophomore, sometimes I would bobble her passes, Beck said. She can get it to you quick, so be ready. Beck was a common beneficiary to Locklear's dishing tendencies Tuesday afternoon. Locklear finished one assist short of a triple-double, 14 points, 17 rebounds, 9 assists, and number one Clear Creek Amanda whipped Gilbert 68-30 in a Class 4A Girls State Basketball quarterfinal at Wells Fargo Arena. It was the first win in three state tournament trips for the Clippers, who improved to 24-0. We're definitely not satisfied, Locklear said. I'm excited for the semifinals Thursday, and hopefully we're here Saturday for the finals, too. The next step is 5 p.m. Thursday against number 5 North Polk, 23-2, a 48-42 winner over defending champion Dallas Center Grimes. We came here for three games, CCA coach P.J. Sweeney said. Thursday is going to be a tough battle, but this group is ready. I can't wait. The first step was smooth sailing. Sam Schrag converted a couple of steals into baskets in the first four minutes, and the Clippers led 22-9 after a quarter, 41-20 at halftime. Every game is going to be tough. We had to come out ready to play, Schrag said. Avery Lauer led all scorers with 17 points. She drilled five of eight shots from three-point range. Beck, eight of 11 from the field, scored 16. Schrag, six of seven, tallied 12. 12. CCA shot 54.7% from the field, including 63.3% in that surgical first half. Locklear admitted the bench was keeping track of her numbers and that elusive 10th assist was on her mind. It is what it is, she said. As for the rebounds, a lot of it was my teammates playing a phenomenal defense. I went to get the ball, and when I get it, I push it. The top defensive team in 4A at 31.2 points per game allowed. The Clippers held Gilbert, 15-10, to 11 of 46 shooting from the field, 23.9%, including 1 of 20 from long range. Our pressure in the first quarter, Sam got a couple of steals early and it set the tone, Sweeney said. With four juniors and a freshman in the starting lineup, Gilbert is where CCA was last year. We've been there, Beck said. It's nice to be on the other end of it this time. Quillen, Solon, back in semis. Spartans pull away in the final 11 minutes. Oust Dubuque Wallert by Jeff Linder. Everybody should have an Anna Quillen on their side. She's so tough, teammate Callie Levin said. I'm glad she's ours. Anything Quillen can give the Solon Spartans offensively, that's a bonus. Gravy. She was just everywhere today, Coach Jamie Smith said, especially on the glass. Quillen supplied eight points to go with her 16 rebounds Tuesday morning, and number three Solon pulled away late to beat number seven Dubuque Wallert 58-47 in a Class 3A girls' state basketball quarterfinal at Wells Fargo Arena. The Spartans, 22-3, pulled away from a 39-39 third-quarter deadlock, and advanced to the 3A semifinals for the second consecutive year. They'll face number two, Des Moines Christian, 24-1, a 49-46 winner Monday over number eight, Benton Community, at 3.15 Thursday afternoon. I looked up, and it was 39-39. We took a timeout. We had to recuperate and focus, said Levin, a University of Iowa signee. We got on the boards, we played tough defensively, and we moved the ball around. It started with Quillen, who converted an offensive rebound, one of her eight in the game, into a basket and a 41-39 lead. Haley Miller followed with a three-pointer, and the Spartans took a 44-39 advantage to the fourth quarter. Wallert, 19-6, was hanging around at 48-43, but Solon scored the next eight to wrap it up. Quillen entered the game averaging 4.7 points and 8.9 boards. To me, if she gets eight points, it's like somebody getting 30, Smith said. She's a gamer. 
Quillen was quizzed about her role. Hustle, effort, rebounds, she said. I've got to help give our team second chances. I just do what I can. Levin was outstanding early, hitting six of her first seven shots from the floor. She had 15 points by halftime and finished with a game-high 20. On the strength of a long-range flurry, Delaney Durr hit a three-pointer, Levin nailed a pair, Miller added another in a 12-3 run, Solon built a 32-20 lead midway through the second quarter. A basket and a three-pointer by Claire King spurred a Waller counter-surge, and the Golden Eagles were within 34-29 in intermission. Miller added 16 points, Kobe Leitz 11. Claire Lucan paced Waller with 15 points, Olivia Donovan added 13 and 11 rebounds. We knew Lucan was going to get her points, Miller said. I think we have a good chance in the semifinals. I don't want to take anything for granted. We've got to keep up the intensity. Mount Vernon is masterful in 3A route. Top-seeded Esterville Lincoln Central up next for Mustangs. By Jeff Linder. Nate Sanderson's biggest fear, he said, was the first four minutes. Would we be jittery, he said, wondering. Would we be nervous? Would we be tight? Nope, nope, nobody, nope, nope. Fourth-ranked fourth ranked Mount Vernon played loose, free, and brilliantly, smoking number 6 Harlan, 67-25, in a Class 3A quarterfinal at the Girls' State Basketball Tournament Monday at Wells Fargo Arena. That was something else, Peyton Simpson said aptly. It was a lot different from what I expected. Yeah, you think four versus six, you think nail-biter, this wasn't. Now that the Mustangs, 22-3, navigated that first four, let's ponder final four, shall we? Mount Vernon will face number one Esterville Lincoln Central in a 3A semifinal at 1 p.m. Thursday. ELC, 23-2, defeated number 12 Forest City, 61-47, Monday. Bottle Monday's performance, and it could be quite a memorable week. The Mustangs set a 3A record in the current five-class format with 14 three-pointers and 24 attempts. They connected on 56% of their field goal attempts, 25 of 45. And they held Harlan, 24 to 9 of 44 shooting, 20.5%. Simply, they were superior, far superior. We had an awesome first half, Sidney Huber said. All of our shots, it seemed, were going down. Mount Vernon led from start to finish, but it was competitive for a while. We played really free, said Sanderson, who has overseen a drastic three-year transformation in this program. Mount Vernon was 121 at the season before his arrival. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 28, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.